welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what age like a fine strawberry wine and what age like milk. I am Kit. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Izzy. I use she, seer pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall related things at Abbey Archives on Twitter. Today, we are... Really quick, wanna the, yes. this episode is gonna come out probably way after it has ended, but Re Redwall <laughs> is doing a zine. They're doing a a a, 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 a Redwall zine for oh, like yeah. artists and writers and shit, and I'm so excited for it. I'm definitely gonna apply for it. Uh-huh. So if this comes out after that is ended, like y'all be on the lookout for when that comes out because oh my god, it's gonna be so good. There's so many. <laughs> good creators in this community honest to god yeah like that flipping so quilt excited. everyone keeps sending us not quilt the, but the fucking tapestry tapestry everyone keeps sending us mm, i sent it to my mom i was like i want this <laughs> <laughs> she's Fair. not gonna buy it for me but god i want it right anyway Okay. Uh, Today we are covering book one slash part one of Redwall from chapters one through chapter one through twenty. Thank you. From chapters one through twenty, the first book uh, in Redwall is called The Wall. (laughs) Pink Pink Floyd's The Wall starts playing. (laughs) My classical rock raised, but it's just like all in all, you're just Just another another brick in the wall. wall. Anyway, content warnings include ableism, unsanitary conditions, on-screen death, bodily harm, siege warfare, snakes. Nope. The the birds well, have not snake. shown up yet. 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 But there are yet. snakes. There are snakes. I also am going to put sanism in here because okay. Clooney. Honestly, though, like I feel like he's not as bad as Sarmina somehow. No. The, the way that they handled him is not as bad as Sarmina like they don't like he does the, all of that shit on purpose mm-hmm. I think it's like he knows like there's a degree people, where so he plays yes it yeah he's excuse me he's playing it up um he is probably like unstable in a way but he's a self-aware right to where he knows like he definitely knows how to stop himself but he just doesn't mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of thing. Whereas Sarmina was going through it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the difference is, is like, here you have a trained warlord, and she was a spoiled rich kid who um, thought she was a trained warlord. Yeah. And whereas, like, she was very powerful. She was very smart. But there's a difference between, like, lived experience and I watched my dad do all this and then wrote on his coattails into my position. So... Yeah. So at the beginning of the book, at least your copy, there's a little yeah. thing from Brian. Mine doesn't have that. Let's see if <laughs> the the publishing year of my copy, if it has it in here. Well, it was from Cotton Creek Elementary School. <laughs> <laughs> Just again for some context, almost all the books that I bought, the Redwall books, I bought them used and secondhand. I think. Actually, no, all the ones that I have are secondhand. I'm just waiting on Marl Frocks from you. Yeah, um, which I still have to take it to the post office. I'm sorry. All right, that's okay. I think, all right, my print edition is from 
June 1998. It's the uh, Ace, yes. Ace Mass Market Edition. Whereas mine is the most recent print edition. Uh, um, Firebird Publishing, I think. Okay. Firebird this... isn't a terrible publisher. As no. far as I know. Yeah, it's a it's published by Penguin Group. Uh, this is specifically... Where's the publishing date for this specific edition? I swear to God. <laughs> it's always hard to find. You're like, oh, I can find it easily. And then... I'm just going to throw this book. <laughs> Any, th we've all seen the most recent print edition that's got, like, Matthias on the front. Yeah. With the sword and the shield and he's in the oversized habit and it's I don't like I don't like this copy not because of the way that it looks but because it is a different size than uh -huh. all of my other books because my other books are all the older editions that are half this thing's size oh you would hate my collection then though it's all the hodgepodge of different sizes <laughs> how dare you I listen some of us have a budget we have to stick to. Was I mean, this wasn't that expensive. Uh, no. This is, like, the most recent. This was only $10. Yeah. For, like, a new copy of this book. Um, and the cover's very pretty. Oh, yeah. I definitely like cover. Anyway, back to the actual contents of the book now that we're done discussing covers and publishing. So my, my We'll never be done discussing covers and publishing. That's okay. My version is an older version, and it comes with a note from Brian. And it's a very sweet little thing. Um, Years are rarely referred to in my books. Instead, seasons mark the passage of time. So it is 40 seasons and more since I commenced to write of Redwall, the enchanted world I discovered. What an enormous privilege it has been to share my brainchild with readers worldwide. I am certain that in the hearts and minds of all my readers, no matter how young or how old, they consider it, as I do, a flowing, timeless saga. From Mossflower's Green Acres, with its ancient abbey standing fast on the dusty path of the woodland fringe, to Salamandastron, mountain sentinel of the seas on the far western shores. My chief delight and satisfaction is, annu is annually to desert the world of modern technology. When winter fades and spring blossoms into summer, I feel an overwhelming urge to travel back once more. Mouse warriors and badger lords come striding through the realms of my imagination, accompanied by their companions, comical hares, rustic moles, faithful otters, and all manner of diverse creatures, questing, feasting, singing, and battling to defend good against evil. Forty seasons now, and forty seasons hence, if fate and fortune permit, I will still be inviting you all to continue the saga of Redwall. Come with me, my warriors, off on the trail of high adventure. Which is just, that's very sweet. Like, it just is. A, it's a very sweet thing. I love it. <laughs> and, like, I feel like this is probably, since this is a later printing, he probably included it. I just find it very interesting that your edition, which is newer, doesn't have that. Yeah, it doesn't. Like, what it has in its beginning is it's got a bit... It, it has, like, at the very, the very first page in here is literally the uh, excerpt uh, where it's like, I will tell you why it is that you and all your kind will forever remain servants, blah, 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 blah. It's got that whole bit. And then, like, huh. the next thing it has is, you know, the publishing stuff, the map, which mine is squished. 
Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to see how this one differs from the one in Moss Flower. Yeah. Then it has the rhyme from beneath the Great Hall Tapestry. Right. And then it has, it was the start of the summer of the late rose, blah de blah blah yeah. Which actually, I want to acknowledge that for a moment. Um, this is a short little blurb at the beginning of the book where they are telling us the season and setting the tone of the story to come. And the thing that I like is that he does say, um, you know, bathing delish delicately at each dew-laden dawn. There we go. Blossoming through high sunny noontides, languishing in each crimson-tinted twilight that heralded the soft darkness of June nights. And I think I make a note of this later, too, but um, this is a very common issue for fantasy authors, and I kind of want get to get into this at the top of the episode, because with fantasy and science fiction authors, there is often a conundrum and a fine line they have to walk between, like, referencing things from our world and referencing things that like it might not exist in this fantasy world like somebody in a fantasy universe being like oh this is my french poodle and it's like why is it a french poodle france doesn't exist here but it's like everyone knows what a french poodle is if you just called it a poodle you'd still know what a poodle was but you know it's like sometimes you have to acknowledge that like it might not exist in this world but for my reader to understand what it is i have to call it what it is and, like, I can point out a couple of books that try to not do that, that try to use completely made-up terms, and reading through the books, I'm completely lost. Like, um, I like the Dresden Files. <laughs> I, well, for instance, they liked, liked the last book, kind of, mm, not happy with that. But um, every other series of Jim Butcher's that I've tried to read, completely unreadable. Like, the one that he wrote, the, um, the Cauldrons of Alara series... He goes head deep into, I'm going to call a sheep a smeep, and then never explain what it actually is. Like, I went through two books in the series before I realized that the, he's basically got like a race of Neanderthals who have like advanced and, you know, become a civilization in this alternate world next to our own. And they ride giant ground sloths, but he never calls them giant ground sloths he uses some made-up name and then he just like vaguely described describes their bodies it took me two books to realize that they were riding giant ground sloths and their main prey animal was a terror bird like hello uh butcher it would have taken two seconds to be like yes this giant sloth like creature it, like that's all you would have to do so when you have fantasy <laughs> authors especially for a series for kids who are just like you know what sure maybe the gregorian calendar doesn't exist in this universe but y'all know what a dozy June evening is like. So here you go. It's a dozy June evening. Now you know exactly the setting. You know exactly the tone. And that is all you need. Um, so I'm still, though, Virginia Creeper. What child knows what the fuck a Virginia Creeper is? I mean, just the name alone lets me know, like, oh, that's a vine. Like, even as a teen, I was able to pick up, like, oh, yeah, that's just a vine. You know, because you call something a creeper. It's like, yeah, that's, that's a vine, right? But still... <laughs> this is me being nitpicky though that's okay like, i mean like we nitpick plenty throughout the book like again like that's why i got into this at the top of the episode because like we are going to nitpick some things but i'm also going to like make an effort to point out like this is a good thing he did here and it makes sense in context and then this is uh, something that he didn't necessarily need to include or it just kind of confuses and pulls you out of it for a moment yeah so like again so like the inclusion of some things good solid it gives you a good you know footing to get your grasp in the world other things it's like oh hey wait a minute 
another thing too is like this first book weirdness is like there's going to be a lot of stuff that never appears again in the series because he's still like this is the first book he actually published in the series right yeah we started with we started with moss flower because we wanted to do that um and i'm glad that we did yeah but redwall was the first book that was published and the difference between the two is very stark yeah like i i will admit so far that i've had almost more fun reading redwall so far like if i had to describe it as like um moss flower is like a good it's a good solid read and it's enjoyable but redwall it's like it's got that first book weirdness and you can tell he's just like throwing things at the wall and having fun while he's doing it so it it isn't like throwing throwing the catholic spaghetti at the wall yeah (laughs) with a little bit of arthurian sauce to keep it interesting yeah okay (laughs) so after the short blurb about setting the season and the tone of the story we meet clumsy young matthias uh who i love he's a dumb dumb older teenager i it's never clear how old he actually is they, they waffle a little bit, but it definitely feels like he's between, like, 14 to maybe 16 years old, I would hazard. Yeah. Like, he's definitely he's got... not, like, a teen, teen, 13-year-old. He's definitely older than that, but... Yeah. You mentioned, like, the that you love the clumsy farm boy, yes. like, beginnings, and I was like, it's got, like, big Superman vibes. Mm-hmm. Like... Well... Another thing about this book... In, like, a traditional Superman way and not, like, a Smallville kind of way. Another big thing about this book is it is is a classic hero's journey, which... Yes. I remember actually reading that book and getting so mad at it that I left it at an airport. Like, no, fuck this book. I'll buy a different one. (laughs) Like, if somebody (laughs) wants to read it, they can have it. I'm done with it. But it was just, like... (laughs) Like, the the basic outline of a hero's journey is good. When you actually go to read the book and it's like, oh, this is sexist sexist as hell. I'm not reading this anymore. (laughs) Yeah. If you want to understand what a hero's journey is, watch uh, Brian David Gilbert's video about trying to understand Kingdom Hearts. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That actually, he does do a good explanation of what a basic hero's journey is before it goes off the goddamn rails. All right. To be fair Um, to our readers, though, can I give a quick summary of what a hero's journey is? Sure. All right, so a hero's journey, for those who don't know, it usually starts out with a young, inexperienced hero of one sort or another who receives the call to adventure. And the call to adventure can be any number of things. It can be someone having a prophetic dream. It could be hearing news that something dangerous is on the way. Uh, Any number of those things. But then usually the hero will have to step up out of their comfort zone. They'll either lose the home that they were comfortable in or leave that home. And then they will have to proceed to grow and learn where they will be able to, like, they'll, they'll basically go through trials and then they will come back and save the place that either they save the place where they came from or they end up saving the world in general. Or even sometimes they just save themselves and a loved one. But it's your pretty typical, like, um, Star Wars is a hero's journey. The original trilogy is a perfect example of a hero's journey. Um... I'd almost hazard to say, like, games like Breath of the Wild or something like, um, hmm. what other game would be a good hero's journey? 
But the like, uh, first Kingdom Hearts game? Yeah, the first Kingdom Hearts actually is like a really good hero's journey because you have him leaving his comfortable world, you have the call to adventure, you have him meeting new friends and companions along the way, you have him learning, you have his moment where he is in the pit or hell or the darkest spot where, you know, he gets the keyblade yoinked away from him by his yeah. currently you being a dickbag because of teenage is- hormones. But Yeah, if you know what an isekai is, they're usually hero's journey. <laughs> no, they're not. Except, like, They're power more. Isekai are power fantasies. They are not heroes' journeys. It depends on the isekai. That's true. Good isekai are heroes' journeys. Uh, like, I don't necessarily want to say Inuyasha's a good isekai, but in the terms of it being a hero's journey... I don't think Inuyasha really counts as an isekai, though, because she can go home anytime she wants. That happens in other isekais. Yeah, but they're not good isekais. Listen... Inuyasha is a good series, but I wouldn't <laughs> count it as an isekai. It is an isekai. I will fight you. <laughs> I think a better example would be like, um, so I'm a spider, so what? Because she starts as the literal I weakest mom. I don't even mob. know what that is. Well, that's your own fault for being uh, just not educated in the I'm not a weeb. <laughs> Basically, she starts Miss, out- Miss, I still watch the dragon anime. <laughs> Although I'm very close to quitting it because it's like, sir, please, like, please, can we just like throw the manga in the trash and like maybe give like Irudu like a few more inches of height so she's not the no. same height as she is. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, it's literally, can, you know what that is. You know, know why it exists and I you know. continue. And it makes me so mad. Anyway, we can't get stuck on this. Yes, sorry. <laughs> we so we meet, like... we meet Matthias. He trips and stumbles and literally lands at the feet of Father Abbot Mortimer. Uh, the abbot speaks very kindly to Matthias and he like ap- he helps him like pick up all the hazelnuts that he had just spilled everywhere. Um, and in their conversation, he's like ca- he's he catches on to the fact that Matthias is not truly devoted to the cowl and takes him off to have like a real talk. And so Redwall is a place that, like, in Redwall the book, this is apparently, like, so far forward in time that Redwall is known all over the known world. Or and at the least cowl within Mossflower. Well, it's said that, like, in other places, too, if you see somebody who is mm. of the cowl, like, you don't fuck with them. Yeah. Um... Which but, is interesting so like, because it implies that like there are no other abbeys or groups like this out there anymore. It's because like, Lonehead died. Yeah. <laughs> but so the the cowl to take up the cowl of Redwall is to be a peaceable like pacifist and to vow to take care of anybody who needs it, help give them shelter and food and healing, etc. Um, which I have opinions about. <laughs> but we'll get into that as the story goes. I think, um, I think this could be a case of... Um, idealism. Idealism, yeah. Gentrification is not the right word, but like gentrification, no. maybe? Um, <laughs> like, they, they have had enough time and enough peace that they have been able to establish this... Basically, they've had the luxury of peace to become a pacifist society. They've had the luxury for the hard times to become myth and legend. Yes, um, and they live in relative privilege and luxury. Yeah. 
Well, they definitely, uh, like, for this world's equivalent of luxury, they are living in, like, practically the Garden of Eden. Yes, that, I think that is supposed to be what Renwall is supposed yeah. to be. Um, we get a really cute small aside about a thrush who was trying to, like, steal some of the hazelnuts, but they're still in their hard, like, outer shells. Uh-huh. And then he just pretends, like, no, I wasn't actually going for this. <laughs> I know, it's so cute. He began whistling jauntily a few bars of his melodious summer song, strolling nonchalantly off to the cloister walls in search of snails. Like, it's such a cute little aside. I had to put a note in it here about good. it. So, uh, uh, Abbot Mortimer takes Matthias to the tapestry of Redwall, which depicts Martin gloriously. Um, at least in one corner. Like, yeah. like they're just like, here's oh, the- he's in a corner here. Yeah, here's the thing. <laughs> the tapestry, uh, uh, if, take a shot, if I remember correctly... <laughs> The tapestry kind of changes from book to book. Well, to be fair, like, they do have to, spoilers, repair it after this book. So it wouldn't surprise yes. me if they did change it, too. It's also said that, like, the tapestry is was was or is added onto with progressive generations. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me if over time he was given, like, a bigger, more central role. Or he used to be, and then as shit went on. Right. I don't know. Because, like, the, this book, like, very heavily implies that, like, Martin is, like, important to the Abbey, but they have had enough history that he is not, like, the only thing the Abbey cares about kind of a situation. Yeah. Um, it could well, at the same time, they... also being like, but Martin! Yeah. It could also be that when the tapestry was made, he wanted less of a, a like, he wanted to be less of a big central figure. Because, like, if he was there, he'd probably be like, uh, no, please, please do not. Like, just put me in a corner here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's... Uh. <laughs> I, I really do love... I had um, words, and then they immediately left my brain. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I do, I do really love, like, reading this book coming right out of Mossflower, and seeing how, like, retelling and time has changed the legend of yeah. Martin, where it's like the Corum isn't even mentioned anywhere in this book. Like, it is all Martin. Like, Martin's the one who freed us, and Martin's the one who founded the Abbey, and Martin is, you know, he has become, like, the hero figure of their, of the Abbey. And he has become the legend of this place. And so he, his memory shoulders all of the burden of being the hero to these people. Yep. Which he takes on just fine. Mm-hmm. Motherfucker. <laughs> Martin's like, well, guess I gotta take care of these idiots now. Oh, <sighs> like, just like, hold my sword, stomps out of the dark forest. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matthias admits that he wishes to be more like Martin and... There, the father tells him of Martin's fierce past and his gentler ending, how the mice of Redwall are pacifists and not warriors. Um, It's in my notes. It's like a reverse Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now they're in the civilized age and Martin was the one who brought them to it. And I said it was weird that predators won't eat them. Well, like this book, like vaguely seems to imply that you know, they've had enough time to establish themselves that they know that if this mouse is wearing a cowl, it will help me. And if I eat this mouse and then get hurt later, I am royally screwed. Like, no one will help me. So it's kind of a case of, like, they the predators know or they have learned to avoid eating mice 
in this position because they are more beneficial alive than in their stomach. Yeah, but still. It, I, yeah. Also, like, <laughs> like again, like, yeah. the weird, like, like, he almost, Brian almost was like, yeah, there's, there's okay rats and okay weasels. Like, he very briefly, like, flirts oh, with this idea. That, that flirtation with it and then throws it out the window. Yeah, it's like, Brian! <gasps> okay, Brian. so... Um, okay. Blah, 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 blah. Blah. <laughs> Words. <laughs> so, people, the mice of Redwall are welcome across the land and live in safe, peaceable times, not the time of warriors. He tells Matthias to accept the life of a Redwall mouse and to run along and help prepare the feast for his golden jubilee as an abbot. This... Uh, and we both made comments about how Abbot Mortimer has, like, the rich old man Who's kind never of vibe. faced real hardship. Like, this is someone who grew up in the fat and has lived his whole life in the fat and has never actually had to, like, step out of his comfortable, like, oh, yes, I am the leader of these nice, peaceable creatures. I, we are so rich and noble and we've got all the food we want. And who cares about fighting? Come help me set up a feast for myself. It's like, I didn't like him at first. Like, I, I, I warm up to him a little bit later in the book. But it's like this first couple chapters is like, mm, not sure how much I like this guy. Yeah. Like, the, the specific passage where uh, he says this is, Once more the abbot's heart softened towards the little mouse. Poor Matthias, alas for your ambitions. The day of the warrior is gone, my son. We live in peaceful times, thank heaven. You need only think of obeying me, your abbot, and doing as you are bidden. In time to come, when I am long gone to my rest, you will think back to this day and bless my memory, for then you will be a true member of Redwall. Come now, my young friend, cheer up. It is the summer of the late rose. There are many, many days of warm sun ahead of us. Go back and get your basket of hazelnuts. Tonight, we have a great feast to celebrate. My golden jubilee is abbot. When you've taken the nuts to the kitchen, I have a special task for you. Yes, indeed, I'll need some fine fish for the table. Get your rod in line, tell Brother Alf that he's to take you fishing in the small boat. That's what young mice like doing, isn't it? Who knows? You may land a fine trout or some sticklebacks. Run along now, young one. Yeah, like, and just... It's just, it's the knowing... If you didn't know what happens in this book, then you, it wouldn't be as kind of annoying. I mean, not not even Like, that, it feels... But... It, it feels kind of unaware yeah. in a way that doesn't quite sit right, as well as the way that it's like you only need to, like, listen to me and not yes. anything else. And it's like, that's very exclusionary. Like, it's very. it's very insular. I mean, like, they do live behind their walls. Yes. You know, like, Redwall is, in a lot of ways, a contained society. It's when you have characters who come in from the outside that things usually get more interesting and stir things up. Otherwise, they just kind of continue on. Again, kind of with the Garden of Eden analogy. It takes an outside influence to really shake things up and change or bring more life back to this abbey. Yep. I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say bring more life back to it, but <laughs> stop it from stagnating. Yes. Bring it out of this, this uh, cycle. Yeah. The, the same day-to-day -day. uh and then we get the next chapter which is just about Clooney. 
Yeah. I love this chapter. It's only two pages, but it's so good. Clooney the Scourge arrives in a well-written and flamboyantly terrifying fashion. I love how this chapter mythologizes him. He is terrifying. He knows it. It, like, he's... I am not the only person in the Redwall fandom who thinks this. Clooney is a good-looking villain. He needs a flea bath. But... He was big and tough. An evil rat with ragged fur and curved, jagged teeth. He wore a black eye patch. His eye had been torn out in a battle with a pike. Clooney had lost an eye. The pike had lost its life. And then we have some say Clooney was a Portuguese rat. It's like, ah, uh, wait, what does that even mean, oh, there's, Yeah, like, wait, Portugal is in the, wait, this is where we get the spaghetti at the wall. There's a lot Again, of shit like this. The first where, book weirdness. There's a lot of references to our world as well as this is the book where we get a lot more of the idea that humans are here. Or were here at one Be- point or another. Yeah. Because there's a fucking horse. Yeah. And there's a just a horse. A hay cart big enough to hold 500 rats. So this is a human-sized hay court. Hay court. Hay cart being pulled and by this horse. A horse-sized horse. A horse-sized horse. <laughs> which further cements my thought that these animals are roughly analogous to their actual sizes. Like, not like one-to-one scales, but like... A rat is mostly rat-sized. A badger is mostly badger-sized with some fudging to make them a little more equal to each other so it's not completely David versus Goliath. But also, but also, the bugs are tiny. Except for the bees? Except for the bees or the beetles, which are apparently pets for them. But ants are tiny. Ants are tiny. Well, I don't. Could you imagine, like, an ant big enough to be no. a pet, though? Especially when you... Imagine a bee big enough to be a pet. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There's some really big bumbles out there that are really Yeah, cute. but, like, big enough that they call them bee folk? Oh, that's true. I always thought that he called them bee folk because he could talk to them, but they weren't, like, bigger. This could also, again, be, like, a mouse to a bee scale versus a human to a bee scale. So. But then the ants are tiny. I... <sighs> Hello, welcome to This is a Debate the Community Has Had for Decades. And we are, we're probably going to argue about this in every book. <laughs> Some books it's not as obvious. No. Some books it just doesn't even come up. Again, Other the, books it's like, what the fuck? And then, like, if we bounce to the next chapter, or, well, sorry. No, they, wait, we're still here. Yes. Because we've also got, like, the different kinds of rats that they talk about. Oh, my like, God. Sewer rats, tavern rats, water rats, dockside rats. Clooney's a bilge rat, which is the biggest, most savage rodent that ever jumped from ship to shore. What? (laughs) (laughs) They do this with every other animal, too. Like, this is where we get, like, there's a difference between, like, field mice and, excuse me, harvest mice and church mice and door mice, etc. Like, he does drop this in the later books. Um, sort of. Like, I, I think, like, I vaguely remember, like, the voles do get different. Like, it's a water vole, or it's a bank vole, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Like, there is there is a difference between those certain things, but a lot of times when it comes to, like, mice and rats, that differentiation is dropped. Yeah. Um, because they're just mice and they're just rats, because for the most part, they all look exactly the same. Yeah, like, usually the only differences you'll get will be, like, <laughs> size, maybe coloration, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine, like, fancy rats who were, like, nobles, who had, like, the pretty coats, and... <laughs> Brian, you missed out on such a fun opportunity here! Like, imagine fancy rats! Like, 
domesticated rats who were like Dumbo proud rats. of their coats and Dumbo rats. Dumbo rats with their big Dumbo cute rats. ears. Christ. But then we would have again that whole because then you've also got fancy mice. Yes. And you have to get into where did these come from? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like it's it's like that theory of like how humans domesticated themselves. You know, how our species changed as we chose more of a um, agricultural lifestyle over hunter and gathering. And that's like how we got like all the different hair colors and different eye colors and things like that. And um, I could definitely imagine like the mice of Redwall in this book having those differentiations in coat color. Yeah. Like they've they've lived such an agrarian life now that they have like air quotes domesticated themselves. Yeah, but, like, in Mossflower, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, like, that, like, maybe that's where the differentiation comes in, like, mice and animals outside of Redwall who have not had that comfortable lifestyle to allow these different mutations in coat color and size and appearance to occur. Yeah. But, anyway. The end of this chapter is just, Clooney was a god of war. Clooney was coming nearer. It's so good, because it feels like a, 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 a story you would tell a kid. Like, it's so good. Like, it's the it like I said it's like really good like mytholo- like mythologizing of Clooney. Yeah. And he does it to himself too cuz oh, he's just yeah. he perpetuates his own shit. He, he is so full up. of himself. He's so good. So he and a horde of 500 they take a stolen hay cart down the road letting the poor horse that's pulling it run as far as it can because this horse is terrified of these rats. Let's, we'll talk about the horse later. I don't want to get into it right now. I do have a note about it. Yes. Moving on for the um, time being. Take a shot. Ma- we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so Matthias and brother Elf managed to catch a grayling. Now, if you don't know what a grayling is, it is not a very large fish. Okay. <laughs> Let me just really quick Google how big a grayling is. Oh, they're kind of cute, actually. Big old fin. Grayling fish. Okay, but, like, looking at the pictures of these fish, like, in a person's hand, and, like, comparing that to the size of, like, an actual mouse, that would be a bit, that that would be kind of, like, the equivalent of a human reeling in, like, a big, like, uh, tuna or something like that. Well, maybe not a tuna. Tuna are big fish. Uh. (laughs) I mean, consider how small a mouse is. Yeah. Maybe more like a small swordfish? Oh, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's grayling are, are yeah. Grayling can fit pretty comfortably. Like you can hold them in your hand. Like they'll lay across it. Um, this fish that they caught is two pounds, mm-hmm. which it can apparently feed the entire abbey uh, for months to come. <laughs> well, it's yeah. Well, they don't really say that, but. Yes, they do. <laughs> Where hustle fire stop. Nice scales, Brian. It's later. Finish. It's later on, I believe. But yeah, when they bring it, like, because hmm. eh. like eh. I'm looking at the part where they're talking to to Hugo. Anyway, so but they are aided by a badger named Constance, and we also meet Fat Friar Hugo. Ah, uh, yes, Hugo. I feel like if one. This, I love Constance. I love Constance. And so much. Also, wait, hold on. Why did Constance carry the fish in her mouth? I'm guessing, like, the implication is like the fish is big, so she needed to carry it in her mouth. 
But it or, would be easier to carry it in her arms. I don't know. I feel like this is probably, like, Brian trying to play up the fact that Eric Const- Constance is, like, um, here's where the ableism comes in. Yes. Um, but, like, throughout the book, Constance is often depicted as slow. Um, like, people are just like, oh, And she's not! But she's not. So she's often depicted as, like, she's slow. She's not, like, the brightest bulb in the box, you know, or the sharpest tack. Yeah. Stuff like that. And then, like, but throughout the book, we see her being very intelligent, very smart. And it's like, she's not stupid. She's not even necessarily slow in that sense. She just takes her time about things. And it very much bothers me. Yeah. Um, but it's, we keep pointing it out as we go along yeah. through this, and it gets worse as the book goes on. But so. A fat fryer Hugo carries a dandelion in his tail to keep himself fresh while he's cooking because the kitchens are very warm. Um, but he's very, like, jovial and excited about this fish. Is he gay um, or is he European? But... <laughs> <laughs> this man is gay European! Sorry, I, I have a note about that because, like, the way Friar, uh, Friar Hugo is described is that, like... In a modern book, he could potentially have been, like, a queer-coded character because he's very cleanly. He likes to keep the dandelion to keep himself fresh. He's, um, ostensibly French? Question mark? Yeah, um, um, yeah, no. He's, like, when he starts talking about how he's gonna cook this fish, he's like, bring the white gooseberry wine, fetch me some rosemary thyme, beech nuts, and honey, quickly. And now, friends, now, he squeaked, waving the dandelion wildly with his tail, I, Hugo, will create a grayling a la Redwall, such as it will melt in the mouth of mice. Fresh cream! I need lots of fresh cream! Bring some mint leaves, too! Yeah, so we have this argument. I wanna eat that! See, I don't like fish, but that might How be okay. How do you not like fish? I don't... It, uh, listen... You know what it's like to have texture bad. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, see? Thank that you. That makes sense. Fish texture, bad. There are some fish fair. I can... There are some ways I can eat fish I have discovered as I've gotten older, but it is very specific, and usually you don't recognize it as fish by the time it is done. <laughs> fish. Fish. Uh, yes. The, the fry... The, uh... Uh, Friar Hugo is so excited to have this fish. He thanks them. Uh, and then they go and they wash. And, like, the washing for the 101 grooming tasks that Redwall mice always perform in preparation for an epic <laughs> feast. Like, y'all good? <laughs> combing now, whiskers. To, com- sorry, to be, combing to be whiskers, fair. Combing curling tails, and shining noses. <laughs> to be fair, mice are very clean. They are. So are rats. Mice and rats are very clean animals. They they bathe themselves as much as cats do. Yes, more. Yeah. Having owned both cats and rats, rats bathe themselves constantly. <sighs> and yet somehow mine still were stinky boys. <laughs> because they were boys. And that's and the they were uh, they were unaltered, so yeah, that's they were just why. stinky. They were stinky. They smelled like pepperoni. Oh my god. Yeah, they smelled like pepperoni grease oh, that's, all the time. Oh, no. Stinky. stinky. It was really gross and very stinky. Blech. So now we're at the feast um, where we meet Winifred the Otter and Tim and Tess, the church mouse babes. Um, and we both, at different points, 
talk about the fact that the church mice are Gonfa Columbine's descendants. Yeah, like 100%, because cause they live in St. Ninians. Yep, they're from St. Ninians. Um, and Tim and Tess are just little babies, and I love them. And then we, they apparently have just gotten over tail rickets, and both of us were like, we are not going to even try and figure out what that is. <laughs> like, I know rickets itself is an actual illness, but considering my family has a, um, a tendency towards, uh, I don't think it's called this anymore, but hypochondriacs, basically like we read about diseases and then we get very paranoid that we've actually got those diseases. So I'm like, I know myself, I am not going to look this up because I will be paranoid for a month afterwards, even though I know rickets probably Fair. isn't even a thing in the US or isn't a thing anymore. But Fair. I know it is like an actual real disease and he probably just calls it tails ricket, tail rickets just to be cute like a kid. Wouldn't maybe know what rickets is, but you call it tail rickets. Like, oh, it's a cute, funny little disease. The kids are fine, you know, kind of a thing. Yes. Um, Winifred the Otter, like, um, compliments Matthias on catching a two-pound grayling. And that makes Matthias, like, very pleased with himself because otters are champion fishers, particularly Winifred. Uh, I love that Winifred's name is Winifred. It's cute. I love her. <laughs> I, I want to be her friend. Um, <laughs> the abbot is regaled with humble homemade gifts. Um, like an acorn cup from a squirrel, fishbone combs from the otters, mossy bark sandals made by the moles, and many more fine presents too numerous to mention. And I'm over here like, on one hand I get it because it's his like golden jubilee, which is like... I don't know, his anniversary as being the abbot, but also, why? It feels bad. In it a does. weird way, it feels bad. It does. Like, like it feels like, like, what? Like, if this is not, like, okay, so here, there's a difference here. If this is not part of the tradition of the Golden Jubilee and the people just do this because they want to, that's fine. Yeah. It is implied... That this is part of the tradition. Right. Now, to be fair, like, they do give him a lot of gifts, but this is probably a situation of, like, um, he is also regaling them with a lot of food. Like, a lot of really, really good food that they would never get to eat otherwise. And this is actually a very traditional uh, thing in medieval feasts. And even with medieval lords, um, like, the word king comes from kuning, which was basically the giver of gifts or the giver of rings. And kings in the old days, like, yeah, people would bring them gifts. They would bring them gold and food and riches. But it was expected for that person to turn around and then give out gifts as well. That is what made you a king. You had the capacity to give out gifts. So, yes, he's getting a lot of gifts here. And it does kind of feel gross. But, like, looking at it in the historical context, it's like he probably gives out as much as he gets especially with the fact that moss flower or red wall in general is known for healing and taking care of the surrounding community. So it's like, yeah, like him getting these gifts personally, it's kind of like not great, but he also makes sure that it, the surrounding area is well taken care yeah. of. So, it still feels a bit like that idealization. Yeah. It, it's, that just kind of sits bad and with me. Yeah. Like I get it. I get why it's written like this, and I get why Brian wrote it like this. It still kind of sits in a bad place with me, since 
I'm a poor person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do love a, love that, like, most of the gifts are homemade, though. It's like, where else would they get them? But... <laughs> yeah. I love how they, like, specifically mention, like, the homemade gifts. It's like, uh, Brian... What's well, an implication <laughs> that they made it themselves and they didn't buy it from somebody else who made it? Right, but it's like, who would they buy it from? There's no Each other? in this universe. Yeah. Each other? Yeah. Also, yes, there are. Okay, I know, but they're not. They aren't brought up very often, and if they are, no. half the time it's like it's the bad guys using it as disguise. Like, hello, yep. I'm a medicine fox. It's like, ah, yes, I shall trust you, even though this has been done like ten different times throughout the series. Okay. Okay. Abbot Mortimer and, and Friar Hugo where the abbot is making sure that there is enough food for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and Hugo's like, I yes, there is enough food, I promise. It's, um, like, don't worry, Father Abbot, there will be enough for all. How are the cellars stocked, Hugo? How are the cellars stocks, Hugo? Enough to flood the abbey pond, Father. And nuts, we must not run short of nuts. You name them, we've got them. Even candy chestnuts and acorn crunch. We could feed the district for a year. Dairy produce? Oh, that I've got a cheddar cheese that four badgers couldn't roll, plus ten other varieties. Good, good. Thank you, Hugo. Oh, we must thank Alf and young Matthias for that magnificent fish. What fine anglers they are. There's enough to keep the entire abbey going for a week. Excellent mice. Well done. Matthias blushed to his tail's end. I feel like, like this is a good setup to like show that Matthias, while he's not a, uh, trained in combat, he is a very strong young mouse. This is also setting it up for later to show, like, yeah, the Abbey has enough resources yeah. to be self-contained and self-sufficient. Yeah, which does come into play. Like, this is where you can yep. see, like, Martin and um, Abbess, the Abbess's plans, like, coming together. Like, she wanted a place where they would be safe. And all mm -hmm. of her planning paid out. Abbess Germain, Abbess the city planner. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and now we get um, three otters in clown costumes perform an acrobatic <laughs> show. Uh, Ambrose Spike the Hedgehog plays a uh, sleight of hand with like other woodlanders and like the babes, the Dibbins. Dibbins! 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 Um, basically doing like magic tricks and it's like, um, it says, was it magic? Of course it was. That kind of vibe. It's uh -huh. really cute. Uh, at eight, the bell tolls. We get Jos the great Joseph Bell tolling out eight o'clock. Uh, this comes up in the Bell Maker. I remember that book. <laughs> That's a good book. I'm looking forward um, to it. That's one I never read. Yep. Uh, the Abbot says a prayer. Um, I am just over here, like, why, Grace? <laughs> Who are, say grace? who are you praying to, Mr. Abbott? Who are you praying to? Who are the... Shakes the Abbott. Who are you praying to? <laughs> who is your god? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is seated for the feast, and Matthias finds himself next to a pretty little mouse named Cornflower. My enemy! That's all there is in the notes, guys. I cannot emphasize this enough. In all caps, from squirrels, my enemy. <laughs> Listen. I feel bad, like, I can't even hate her. She does not get any of her own agency. She is a lamp. She's a lamp. You could replace this poor child with a sexy lamp, and the book would not be impacted at all. No. Hell, like, one of the biggest speeches we get from her isn't even from her. 
Or it's not attributed to her. Yeah. And it's like, she definitely was saying all of that shit herself, but Matthias is like, no. I cannot. That was Martin. That was Martin. Yeah. Like, bitch. <sighs> you fuck. Um, the feast is as toothsome as, as always. So before that, we get, like, um, Matthias is, like, flustered by Cornflower because she's, she pretty, pretty girl. Pretty little. girl make boy go hublibu. <laughs> I mean, I pers- personally can't relate, but I have seen it happen in real life often enough, and I think that is kind of cute how flustered he gets, you know. Yeah, like, it describes Cornflower as she had the longest eyelashes Matthias had ever seen, the brightest eyes, the softest fur, the whitest teeth, dot, 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 dot. Matthias fumbled with a piece of celery and self-consciously turned to see if the twins were coping adequately. You never could tell with these baby church mice. <laughs> Good cover. <laughs> Um, oh, so good. The feast was... So we get into the feast. It was as toothsome as always. And Hugo steals the show with his grayling. And everybody tucks in. And they they, they talk about some of the food. Um, tender freshwater shrimp garnished with cream and rose leaves. Deviled barley pearls in acorn puree. Apple and carrot chews. Marinated cabbage stalks steeped in creamed white turnip with nutmeg. And then the grayling, which was prepared exactly the way that that the friar said he was going to do it. I love Um, it. (laughs) Friar Hugo entered with a slight swagger added to his ungainly waddle. Yes. He swept off his chest, tapped with his tail, and announced in a somewhat pompous squeak, My lord, abbot, honored guests from Mossflower area, and members of the abbey, ahem, I wish to present my... Pièce de résistance. And the well, get on with it, Hugo. <laughs> There's the get on with it. <laughs> Monty Python voice. Get on with it. <laughs> Very good. Um. <laughs> so um, we have a brief conversation in our notes about what an apple and carrot chew is because Kit was like, "All I could find was dog treats." Yeah, and I'm like, "It's probably like a fruit leather or a baked good." Yeah. Um, like thinking like maybe it's made with like oats or something yeah and then i have an unrelated uh thing like the ostentatiousness of this scene as an adult doesn't sit right with me again it's it's showing off how much that they have yeah like sh- um, it's showing off how prosperous redwall is and like i i again i get why they do this it is good story excuse me good story and world building but i'm poor <laughs> <laughs> and that colors that colors a lot of my readings of this stuff as a kid i thought this was delightful like i remember being like oh man i want to eat all of that and i still do <laughs> and i still think it's like the the imagery that it invokes is really good but i'm over here like the way that the abbey kind of showcases how prosperous it is sits bad yeah like, they are sharing with everybody, and they do offer anything that they have to anybody who comes in. But knowing the culture of Redwall, as well as some of the other books, it's just like, but do they? Kind of thing. Yeah. I'd say, you know? I'd say yes, because, like, you do see it, like, over and over with um, Redwall, where it's like, as soon as someone needs help, 
the Abbey just throws down to help. So. I'm just thinking about the outcast of Redwall. Yeah. Well, they throw down to help if you are a fellow woodlander. If you're like an air quotes vermin, well. Mm, eh. Yeah, that's that's my thing. That's my thing. Now, okay. In their defense, they do offer when that one rat like comes and tries to play up being hurt. Yeah. But the minute like they're just like, but but da and the rat's like, Neh. yeah. Which um, that's like kind of a a a. a two-sided thing where it's also keeping in mind like other people's intent yeah um whereas you can't like entirely fault them for that like they if they are just defending themselves yeah i don't know this kind of privilege doesn't sit right with me usually it's it's again that juxtaposition between feasting when you're the good guy is all well and good but if you're the bad guy, air quotes, then it is gluttonous and bad and you are squandering, you know. It's that it's that juxtaposition yep. between like the good guys eating the gifts that they've been giving and the bad guys kind of wasting and squandering the food they've been given because it's gluttonous. Yeah. Um, it's difficult for me to put into words properly why this sits badly with me because like I know that it is not meant that way. But it does come but it's, across that way. Yeah. it Depending on who you are as a person, it can come across that way. Because you're like, why do they have all of this? Yeah. Especially the dairy. Because they don't really get into how everybody's lives outside of the walls are. They're just like, yeah, people live outside of the walls. Obviously. And like, but they don't talk about, like... How they live. They don't have much of a chance to since like a good chunk of this book is siege warfare where they are in the abbey or in just They the do movies. talk about the church mice. Yeah. They also the mention that family. there are villages outside. Um, but like it's implied that these it's, villages are like human villages because yeah, there are cows weird. and cattle and. It's weird. Yeah. Cows and cattle. They're the same thing. Kit. Spaghetti. spaghetti spaghetti at the wall <laughs> uh, and then uh kit is angry about the fact that they have uh the, it, the mice have prehensile tails it does bug me a little bit like i'm not like angry angry about it but it's kind of like yeah <laughs> i don't like it it's something that i think brian waffles on between books yeah. it just depends on the creature um, it's kind of like the hairs with their ears. It's one of those things where it, it, it's it's a it's a it's a liter it's a literary literary trope, a literary stereotype of like mice using their tails or rabbits being able to use their ears like radar dishes. And <laughs> it bugs me a little bit, but it's something that I can't accept. I just I had to point it out at least once because it's like this has always bugged me whenever it comes up. It's just like mice tails don't work like that. They are not articulated like that. Nope. And so now we're back with Clooney, and the horse has stopped out of sheer exhaustion. Yes. So Clooney makes one of his rats, Skullface, leap onto its back to bite it. But no bite is needed, because as soon as the horse feels Skullface on it, it bucks him off, and the rat is crushed under the cart. Clooney tells him to greet the devil for him. Literally the Christian devil, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. Where we, we we got into a discussion in our notes about this, like, if there's a devil in the dark forest, like, that would be really cool, like, world building, because, like, they don't bring up the dark forest in this book, I don't think. Mm. Um, they don't in this first part, at least. Yeah. 
Whereas in Moss Flower, like, the Dark Forest is the afterlife, and they all go to the Dark Forest. Good and bad, yeah. Um, yeah, this book definitely leans way harder into the Catholic and Christian imagery with the Abbey and a lot of its word choices. Yeah. Um, but, like, a devil figure would be super fucking interesting. Yeah. Um, Again, like, I really but, love this first book weirdness of him just figuring out what he wants to include and what he doesn't want to include. Yeah. God. As as there's some things though with it, like as a kid, I didn't give a shit. As an adult, I'm like, why is this here? Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it pulls me out of the fiction just a little bit. Um I don't know how an editor like editors didn't catch this, but they who knows. Who knows? Who knows? I um, think it's a case of, again, first book weirdness. So, like, the the rules of this world aren't even set yet. He is figuring out the rules as he goes. So, of course, there's going to be some rules, like, what we would consider, oh, well, he broke these rules. It's like, yeah, but they weren't established yet. Yeah. <laughs> this is like going back yeah. and watching old football matches when they still had those dorky leather helmets and, like, barely any padding. And be like, they're breaking the rules. It's like, they didn't even have a league back then. Shut up and watch the old guys beat the crap out of each other. <laughs> All right, now we're back back with the uh, the Abbey mice. The feast is winding down, and the abbot instructs Hugo to make a sack of leftovers for Mrs. Churchmouse to take back with her to the Abbey and to be sneaky about it because John Churchmouse, <laughs> the most John Smith-ass sounding name, <sighs> is very proud and does not want to be given like help that way um individualism culture at its finest the proud poor people stereotype i i feel like a lot of they don't take handouts or charity i feel like a lot of this too where like when you look back on like england's history especially when like they introduced the poor house you see a lot more of like this noble poor stereotype appearing because, like, if you were poor and sent to the poorhouse, that meant you were a detriment to society. You were wasting society's resources because you were too poor to take care of yourself. So I feel like a lot of, like, the noble poor where they don't want to take handouts, they don't want to call attention... They don't want to call attention to the fact that they are poor. Because once people know they are poor, then they are in the class of you are a drain on society and you are not a good person. So I feel like a big chunk of, like, the noble poor stereotype is them just, like, don't call attention to the fact that I'm poor. Don't acknowledge that I am poor. I'm a good, hardworking person. It's just, you know, I, I'm a good, hard worker. Like, I don't need your handouts. Don't don't send me to the poorhouse kind of a thing. That's just... Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 not great either way. And every time, like, now I'm so hyper aware of it in, in um, literature because... Uh, shout out to the Shrieking Shack. They point this out a lot when they're doing their reread. And it's just like, oh yeah, this is actually like really gross. What the heck? Because it's because she who must not be named is a hack. Yeah. <laughs> I came from nothing. Yeah, and you are still nothing inside. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you are. You are a hollow sham of a person being, and you are ashamed to your entire tradition, literary tradition. She gave her nothing. She's still she nothing. Still nothing. She will never recover from that burn. Oh, she needs some aloe. Fuck. And she can't have any of mine. 
someone please help me. My aloe keep making pups. <laughs> <laughs> Too many babies. <laughs> we just, we, we host a giveaway where we give people aloe pups. Yes, honest to God, I'd do it. <laughs> just like, here, please take them, I'll mail them to you. Um. Oh, let me, I gotta breathe. Oh, shit. <laughs> I kind of went off there, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> tweet that hold on <laughs> okay <laughs> it's really good thank you fucking god i'm sorry just like listen i i still love that series it makes me so mad that she grounded into the dirt not just that but like the way she treats like the people like her the most of her fan base the most loyal parts of her fan base before she went and shat the bed were <laughs> in the lgbtq community it was so important to so many people in that community, and she just shot them off. Then she turned out to be the turf queen. Mm -hmm. Turf queen. Anyway, trans lives matter, and fuck turfs. Fuck turfs. listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Abby Archives. And if you'd like to read along with us, join our Discord, linked in the description below. You can also follow our parent podcast at Hope's Hearth Pod. Remember to wash your paws like good dibbins and take care of yourselves. Bye!